It's time for Knox Talk, a behind-the-scenes look at the business side of college sports. Featuring Paul Sickman from Knox Sports and Brandon Parks from the Vol Network. Now for today's show. Welcome to another edition of Knox Talk, and this is a brand new season and a brand new year of Knox Talk, and I am incredibly excited to launch it this year from Rocky Top. I am here in Knoxville, Tennessee with my great friend Brandon Parks. We have a special guest we'll talk about in a moment. Today is Tuesday, March 14th. We are very excited about what we're doing this year, and there's every show in the country is talking about NIL, and because Brandon and I are nothing if not uh, commercial hordes, we will do exactly what the rest of the world will do. And we will talk about NIL as well. But because we're not good enough to talk about NIL, we have an incredible special guest today. We have Kat Jones here from the University of Tennessee. And she is the Director of Name, Image, and Likeness at the University of Tennessee. Brandon, why don't you give a little introduction about our special guest? Well, first of all, it's great to be back on uh, another season of Knox Talk. Is. This is the first one we've actually done in person. Yeah, you are much better looking in person than I imagine. I had to buy his lunch today to get him to do this, but um, but we found a way to, to pull it off and accomplish it. And so. lunch was incredible. I'm glad that I took uh, two plane flights to get a free lunch. Anytime you're ready for it, we'll do it. <laughs> no, we're, we're thrilled to have Kat Jones with us uh, from the University of Tennessee today. Uh, Kat, you've been here... Almost two years. Two years. Mm-hmm. Okay, my, my how time flies. Yes, it um, does. And we're having fun. <laughs> we are having fun. Uh, and we're learning every day. Um, just like I believe everyone else in the industry is learning as well with name, image, and likeness. You have a big responsibility at Tennessee. Tell us generally what that is, maybe even what a normal day looks like if there is such a thing. Yes, I have to admit it does look different every day, but I really split kind of what we call this job into two buckets. Um, Our internal bucket really being the main focus, uh, which is always going to be our number one priority, being educating our student-athletes and being a resource for them um, on this NIL world. Um, It was a crazy new world for them, and it does involve a lot of things all the way from finding a deal to talking to a business all the way to the taxes. Um, So we want to make sure we are providing them the best education and best resources. Um, Next, then our coaches and our staff. This was a big change for them as well. Uh, If you've been in this industry a long time, it's probably one of the, the biggest times of movement. So making sure they feel comfortable and that they have somewhere they can take their questions and we can help educate them and help them push this forward as well. Um, And then our external piece where you and I sometimes get to work together, which is our local community and our national community that wants to get involved in NIL, making sure they understand um, the rules and regulations, also how we can help them, how we can be a resource for them, whether that be connecting a student athlete um, or just giving them some best practices and some things we've seen. So um, every day it's anything from student athlete meetings to coaches meetings um, to creating education um, to adjusting to NCA um, guidance um, all the way to talking to what I call third parties, which is all of our businesses um, that want to get involved in the NIL space. Okay, so prior to Tennessee, you've got a history in sports. You were at UCF. Can you talk to us just a little bit about your background uh, and, and then how you arrived on Rocky Top? Yes, yeah, so I come from um, the background of a compliance side. Um, in an athletic department. So I spent about four years total at the University of Central Florida um, in athletic compliance. And then from there, uh, when NIL was coming, it kind of was a natural fit because there's obviously a huge backing of this that does um, live in the NCAA compliance world. Um, So it was a really natural fit. And when we saw kind of NIL coming down the pipeline, it was something I'd always been interested in. Um, I have both a marketing and legal background. um, So it was kind of a a unicorn of a perfect fit of the two worlds I'd studied kind of coming together. 
Um, so as it, as it came, I got really into it um, from the compliance side. And then when the opportunity did present itself, um, at the time it was one of the first um, NIL specific jobs um, here at the University of Tennessee, they were one of the first ones to jump in. Um, so I actually thought it was a little bit of a, a crazy jump that was almost risky in my career at the time. I didn't know how much job security I was I would have, uh, but we've definitely seen that it's grown. And I think if I have one thing, it is it is job security. So we're gonna so. we're gonna need help in NIL. I would say so. So Kat, I think that what really has been the biggest hardship for Brandon and I when we start looking at NIL and what kind of developed is that all of us saw what would be a perfect NIL world years ago. We saw this sponsorship world of NIL where an athlete have an opportunity to go earn money giving their name, image, and likeness to a company in return for that payment, they would be able to do whether it's appearances or lend their name or their image or their likeness in order for their sponsorship. Clearly that bucket expanded, um, expanded really quickly. Uh, and then that little world, which Brandon and I think might be, you know, five to 10% of the total athlete compensation right now, you don't have to answer that question. But one of the things that's confusing for us on the outside um, a little bit is that when NIL, what NIL was supposed to be and what it is seemed like two different worlds. And we and we saw the train coming a couple of years ago, I'm sure you did too. There is now an acquisition and retention becoming what we perceive to be the primary purpose of NIL. So I guess a question I have, because that was a lot of talking, is to say, if acquisition and retention is really what an athlete might be getting when they get their NIL money, what is the minimum that an athlete has to do for an athlete to justify or a school to justify that acquisition and retention or do you just turn that over to a third party and say that's not really our issue per se yeah so i think i think a few different things on that i think we do still see um what i call the more traditional people's thought of nil happening at a pretty high rate i think what, what happens though is it doesn't get talked about as much um, so we definitely do still see these really cool, what, what we're calling more traditional partnerships. Um, but then we obviously are seeing this collective space and it's, it's become a big player and it's, it's become a big piece of this. Um, and I, I think sometimes it does get a bad rep, but I think it really does have a huge amount of market value, which is where a lot of the, the justifying um, needs to come from and does come from. So the, the actions in an NIL deal to be permissible under NCA policy um, NCA's interim policy right now is some type of service or, you know, signing over of some type of right occurring. Um, so we've seen most recently with uh, collectives, we'll stay in that space, lots of meet and greets, lots of event appearances, lots of autograph signings, lots of those types of events. Um, and I think what we're learning is those are providing huge amounts of community value where they actually are seeing a market value return. Um, so I know a lot of people think it's maybe just, oh, I tweeted about the collective and I'm getting paid an amount. Um, but I do think we're seeing huge amounts of work going into what we want to call these collective deals. Um, it is on the third party to really control these deals and, and make sure that there's a, there's a contract at the end of the day. And each party is fulfilling their sides of the contract. Um, the school's role, um, and that's where this, this always gets interesting, our role is to educate and our role is to provide resources. Our role is not to come in at this point and determine really, really the market value. We are just there to make sure that the NCA policies and sometimes state law are are educated and given over to all the parties in this. Um, so I, I think there, there there are more value than just hey you're signing with a you know an LLC that maybe a lot of people don't see it as a huge amount of business. Um, I use our collectives in the Knoxville area 
you know, they have multiple employees, multiple um, people on a board of directors, and they will tell you they are running a full on business that is providing a huge amount of value to the local community um, beyond what I think people are seeing just in maybe the Twitterverse. So you're not only educating student athletes, coaches, but then also you're educating collectives as well. Correct. Well, that's where um, we've always been in communication with them. At times, we weren't sure what that communication, um, how far it could go. But I think we have a really good picture of it now. Um, and in its constant communication, educating, um, working together on, OK, how can we make this the best for the student athletes? But at the end of the day, they are an independent third party who are making deals um, with our students. And sometimes we have to look at it no different than if the local pizza place wants to make a deal. Um, our job is to educate the local pizza place as much as it is the local collective. Um, and we just want to make sure they have the best information so they can do the best job for it as well. Got it. Yeah, when I talk to athletic directors or marketing folks or even coaches around the country, um, I don't think any of them wanted what we have right now. I think the toothpaste got out of the tube and it just exploded all over their face. And so I, I, I know this is just an opinion. I'm asking about Tennessee because I know it's hard to give an opinion on this. But one of the things that Brandon and I were kind of talking through is that do you agree that maybe the long-term kind of problem here might be that money that originally went to unrestricted funds in a booster world uh, or facilities um, or specific projects that NIL, because the money is being siphoned off and going to players as opposed to unrestricted monies, do you think that those entities might be the losers in the long run, maybe the facility growth or unrestricted booster funds that helps all the Olympic sports, et cetera, et cetera? Do you see that as kind of a trend that might be coming? I think that was a, a huge concern um, for any athletic department, anyone in this business. And we kind of kicked this off almost two years ago. Um, I, I think we're seeing more of a kind of all boats rise. And I know that might be almost too optimistic of a view, but we are seeing people who either had always given to the athletic department, still wanting to give to the athletic department, but also wanting to support a collective, or you're even seeing kind of a switch where there's certain people who maybe first got in with the collective and had never given to the athletic department, and they're seeing, okay, now I want to do both. Um, I know we've sometimes seen that with in the sponsorship side where people maybe hadn't been involved with sponsorships, but they get involved with the NIL deal. And all of a sudden I give them Brandon's number and I say, hey, you might want to talk about a partnership too, because you can actually create a much better NIL deal when you have both the rights to um, a university logo and the rights to a student athlete. We've seen those be really successful. Um, so I tend to view it this a little bit more of an optimistic of it is an all boats rise. Yeah, I love that about you. Uh, we, we've got to support <laughs> everyone in this. Because um, at the end of the day, we still have to keep the lights on at the athletic department. So Yeah, and, and we're in a unique place here in a unique time because we're having a significant amount of success across multiple sports. And so you can look at it I and say you bring that up at some point. <laughs> <you're> <laughs> first Absolutely. Even though we did permit him to have a, a Florida State <laughs> scarf in the background of this uh, <laughs> of this podcast today. Um, but no, Tennessee's seeing success across all sports. And so the level of engagement with our fans across all of our platforms and um, opportunities and ways that you can engage financially, we're in a really good place. Now, not everybody's going to be in that kind of place. That's right. And, and I think that's, that's, I guess, the ultimate point here is that there are schools all over that even the ones that won, right, that are killing it, it's a year two or year three problem when a, a person, an entity gave money specifically for an NIL space that might go directly to an athlete, maybe not looking for all of the um, kind of, you know, payback other than, hey, this athlete came to my school that I support. 
and that situation didn't go well. A bad season, athlete didn't perform well, et cetera, et cetera. What happens in year two and year three? And that, that's really what all of us worry about in sports is you, you don't want the NIL thing to take good fans, fans that are positive on a support program and become disenfranchised fans. So that's kind of just, you know, that's kind of a fear. But Kat, I want, going back to you, and again, this is not a Tennessee question, this kind of an opinion question. Yes, the toothpaste out of the tube, we get it. But if you could have a perfect world, either to go backwards or to go forwards, and maybe you have congressional support to do it, which might be the only answer for NIL. So if you had an opportunity to say, hey, it's perfect world, where would you take this? Where would you go with this world? That's a great question. Um, I'm obviously a super pro NIL person, as that is my job. I think where people say the biggest pitfalls have been communication and confusion. Um, we've always said a huge focus was everyone's like, no one knows what's going on. It's the wild, wild west. And we've been trying to lay it out as much as we can to cut down on that confusion. Because when there is confusion, that's where everyone feels like, you know, we're, we're kind of all over the place. So I'd say in a perfect world, I really would leave a lot of the same things in place. It would just be if we, we could have come out of the gate, all of us with a little bit clearer lines where we've added guidelines as we went if there was a way to come out of the gate with some of the guidelines we have now, so we didn't feel like we were constantly in this, well, can we do it, can we not? Um, and then we look back at things that we were questioning 18 months ago that we're now like, oh, we're fine with that. Mm -hmm. So it's almost if we could have come out of the gate with a better understanding of where it would go, which is, is an impossible perfect world. Um, but that that would be mine if there were a few- So what guardrails that you would like to see? I mean, what, where, where do we go from a guardrail perspective? Just big picture, what, where, where, where would you wanna go? Would it be salary caps? I mean, there, there has to be some level of equity to me. That's the biggest issue, right? Is that there is no equity. I mean, you have a, it's a, it's a struggle between conferences, between states and different laws. It's still hard in some states to do the things. I mean, I mean it's, I know Tennessee has some advantages in that regard, um, which is awesome for Tennessee, um, but Mississippi may not feel the same way as Tennessee right now. So I guess that's the question is that what are the, what are some guardrails that you'd like to see? Yeah, going back to, I think in a perfect world, we would have all come out of the gate working under the same guardrails, right. what, whatever they may have been. What caused so much confusion was you had some without a state law, some with the state law, some trying to follow a state law that looked different than your neighbor. Um, and in the same conference, you would have, you know, seven different state laws, right. all while trying to back into an NCA interim policy that we're trying to figure out where it fits into the state law as well. So I go back to my perfect one at least just one set of guardrails. Yeah. I'll take what really whatever guardrails, um, but I do think one would have cut down on confusion as I've talked to companies or even agents that are working in multiple states and they're always trying to piece it together. That's what's caused so much, I think, of maybe the friction or confusion. Um, to the salary cap, I, I kind of always kick back on people on that of, we don't really, besides a pro athlete salary, we don't salary cap a whole lot else. And reminding people that when we're dealing with, with NIL, we're dealing with an outside market value. And so everyone always comes to me and says, well, okay, if we do get to some type of maybe revenue share, does NIL still exist? To my, to my answer is yes, because you're always going to have companies that want to work with our student athletes because they have a huge amount of both local market value and national market value. Um, so I don't think those pieces go away. And I don't think there is a way to salary cap that, at least not without ending up back in court, um, because we really can't put a cap on someone's, you know, individual third-party deal. I completely agree. I think I think no matter what happens in terms of the athlete perform, you know, guardrails, I think NIL will never go back to not NIL. It will always be 
the athletes will have a chance in college to go make money in the way we always thought it was supposed to be, which was the local company or national company using an athlete to help their business. So in that world, do you think, and I'm sorry, Brandon, I know you have another question, but do you think that that we are headed, I mean, the question everyone keeps asking, and you're no one's more of an expert than you, do you think we're headed to an employee relationship? Or do you think that we're, that that's not going to be something that happens in the next couple of years? I think we definitely know something's going to look different. And I say the next three to five years, um, there's, there's just too much movement in college athletics right now. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Um, what it looks like, I think is the perfect answer. And I think if someone does have it, um, there's some people they should call and give it because I think we're all trying to figure out what it looks like. Right. Is that a little bit of a revenue share? Is there an employee, um, employee, employer relationship? Um, each of those come with huge amount of difficulties. And as I, I, I've dived in on some of them. So that's where I do think that maybe the employee employer is, is harder to get to um, than a revenue share. But I do think we'll see something um, in the next three to five years. I just think we're, we're moving too forward into um, something that's kind of got to give at some point. Brandon, do you think if we went to that model, if we got to the spot where athletes are somewhat or more employees than they are now, what does that do to the fan base? You know, we all we all think about college being so unique and different because because there is this amateurism that's associated with it, right? And there is this affinity that we all have for our respective schools. Um, you know, and we've long talked about here. It's it's more about the power T on the helmet than it is the name on the back of the jersey. Um, so if you if you move to a model like that, then, then there's there's more discussion, and certainly in the marketplace around student athletes are being compensated for it so um, you you do wonder if there's a fraction of the fan base that, that becomes disenfranchised if it if it becomes more of a business maybe than it already is yeah i mean if you, I, I know for myself when i when i took my kids to pro games for the first time i was blown away by these people around me these fans that all are screaming at these people like they work for them you know, which is not an environment you saw in a college it changes game. expectations it does you know and so if you're at a college game and you're with your family there's always a sense that you're rooting for a school and not rooting for a person i think that does change when you when you start paying out i think it adds for more scrutiny yeah yes because they are now being paid right um so cat would you ever tell an athlete i mean would you what would you say to an, an athlete that maybe is in a college environment and that's not the same college environment maybe they grew up in because the fans might be different or the fans might be treating them differently because of an expectation that might change I'll, I'll start with something I've learned in what I say my two years in this space. I've had a lot of um, people that don't like NIL come up to me and express their opinions or their reasons why. Um, and I understand that. And I'm, I'm very open to that. And I've had a lot of people. You've got, you've got thick skin. <laughs> I, do, I do have just some thick skin, but I've had some people kind of say, well, I'm never, you know, they get mad about it. And they say, I'm never going to watch, let's do college football or college basketball again. And there's a few people I've been close enough to that I've almost returned a season later and said, did you watch? And the answer is usually yes. And that's another piece that I kind of remind us as we work through this of viewership didn't go down this year. And, and viewership didn't go down in college football. It's not going down in college basketball. Instead, we're seeing you know attendance records set, I believe at the um, women's SEC tournament this weekend. So I, I think all of it's still rising up. And that I think is a, a kickback of, even if things do change, we all are probably still gonna tune in and watch our team on Saturday, Sunday, Thursday, whatever that may be these days. Um, it, it will look different. And I think what we try to do really hard is explain to our student athletes too, 
that things are being different for them. Things are different now when they come in. Um, they now come in in the social media world where they're to make money. A lot of the times it's on their social media. So their Instagram isn't theirs. It's a business. Their TikTok isn't really their personal TikTok anymore. It's a business. Um, and they have to understand that. But that also means they're already dealing with a lot of these criticisms. And they're dealing with the fact that social media can be a really harsh world. Um, and so sometimes we tell them, you're going to have to have a thick skin if that's the world you want to come into as well. Um, and in times it, it, it can be harsh. And I do think one thing no one's giving student athletes enough credit for is they've taken NIL and, and really ran with it in really positive directions. And they've burdened, you know, whether that be the social media voice. But now, OK, my social media is work. It's no longer just me and my friends. Um, you know, I'm kind of working a business on that as well. So internally within the department and the program, one of the concerns I think early on with NIL is what what does that do to the locker room? And you have specifically in football, you have specialty players, just mm -hmm. like in the NFL, um, who probably are securing more NIL agreements than, than say, uh, the offensive or defensive ones. How much do you and your department or the coaches talk about that with the student athletes? Because you need that locker room to be bought in and all together. And you could easily see how a locker room could come divided if you don't have the right kind of leadership. Yeah, I think in these past, what, three, four years, you've heard the word culture used way more in college athletics, even before NIL than you ever really heard. And I think it's because we learned that it, people's culture was so important to have that unity in a locker room. Um, and I, as you said, I'm very positive. I kick back to playing time and different factors always cause these little locker room tips. We've just now kind of created another one. Um, and, and there's two pieces to that. Some of it's an understanding that there's a certain position that always may be viewed a little bit higher based on the kind of position than another. And that is a reality of, of that sport or that position. Um, the other one, and I'll kind of share a story. I had a student athlete come in and they were working on these cool NIL deals and they kind of stopped and were like, Phew, this is like a job. And I was like, yeah, yes, <laughs> it truly is. It's like a full-time job. So I also more than me, so I think appreciate it. <laughs> yes. and they have a great market value, but they're like, this is work. And NIL is work. If you're going to go out there and work these deals, it is a huge amount of work on these student athletes. I say it's now you're a student, which is a full-time job, an athlete, which is a full-time job, and now you have NIL, which is a third full-time job. Um, but to that point, I also have a lot of walk-ons or Olympic sports student athletes who have huge market value in this space because they're willing to put in the work, um, huge amounts of work um, without, you know, name and names. There's a, there's a track and field student athlete who has put huge amount of works into her craft, her content, both her um, craft on the track and off. And she's one of outperforming huge amounts of other, you know, not such yeah. revenue sports um, because of the work she's put in. So to that kick, I'd almost be like, NIL is the perfect example. If you want to go work it, you can make a lot of money. So if, you, if you're feeling unfair or slighted, I'd almost say, okay, let's sit down and put in some work yeah. and see where that can happen as well. Yeah. So back to our world in terms of what Brandon and I do for a living, um, Kat, we talk a little bit about uh, educating the athlete about the marks because it seems like that's going to be one of the biggest hurdles is they, they come in and they, you know, they sign with the University of Illinois and they immediately think I can wear that, I can wear that eye anywhere I want to. They sign with Texas and they're wearing burnt orange and their, and their number what is the education process there? Because they can't, because they, you know, that if now we're talking about real NIL now, you know, I guess all traditional, non traditional, even if it's an acquisition or retention, they don't have the use of the marks. So how do you get to go about educating them so that they don't burn the clients that, that Brandon's working on and that I'm working with across the country? 
huge, huge difficulty, but a huge area that we, we've got to continue to push to get right. I would say you have more college kids educated on the words trademark and intellectual property than you've ever had before. And we have a That's lot of ways. Yes, <laughs> yes. And it's where I kind of legal nerd out. Um, but one of our favorite things with student athletes is you do have to remember we're dealing with what, 18 to 22 year olds who have not had the chance to even finish college because they're in the middle of it. They have not had the chance to, let's say, if they want to pursue a law degree, they haven't had these intense legal intellectual property conversations. So what our job is, is to make sure they understand it at the level of, let's say, a college freshman, because they do hear it from me the second they uh, first time they meet me um, in orientation, they hear about intellectual property and they hear about protecting those marks. Um, and we do. We simplify it down. The best way I can do it, um, I'll share with you guys, is just really a simple example of when someone pays to use a school's mark, they don't automatically get the student athlete unless they pay for the student athlete. And then I tell them, now flip it, right? Just because they're paying to use you doesn't mean they um, have paid to use those marks. Um, so we really do try to um, simplify it, but that's also where we, um, if we're talking to those businesses and th those third parties, making sure they understand it. So Kat, we're talking about, you know, the athlete can and can't control regards to marks. So tell me about, you know, their number. If they wear their number, they go out in public, and in your case, they're number 12, and they're out in public wearing an orange 12. What happens then? They own that number? Can they do that? That That's a great question. I think it's a great example of, of where we're still in gray spaces, that we're still figuring pieces of this out, um, whether that's in conjunction with whoever, you know, our multimedia rights holder is, our corporate sponsor people, um, and our licensing people. They've become a huge piece of this as well. Um, so that's a great example of one that I can't say I have a concrete answer on um, that just shows that this this is gray and it, it's evolving um, daily. Yeah. Let me ask, um, I know as we're getting ready to wrap up, do you have an example or two that you're really proud of from an NIL perspective at Tennessee where, where you've seen something that's been really mutually beneficial, not only for the student athlete, but for an entity that's working with a student athlete? Yes, I have a few. I think I'll, um, one of my favorite feel goods was more of a life skills moment, um, but I definitely kind of carried it with me. Um, it was a, a female student athlete and it was someone who kind of had told her, hey, um, you know, name your price. And at the time it was early and there's still, there's still not a lot of data on, on what. No one's told me to name. <laughs> right. Yeah. No one had ever said that. Um, <laughs> but she, you know, it was a considerable amount of deliverables. It was going to take her a considerable, considerable amount of time to complete this NIL deal. Um, and it had some exclusivity. So it definitely had some, what I call mitigating factors. And her and I just sat down and talked through each of those because she, this was her first time that she I was dealing with a contract and was dealing with, let's say, a negotiation, kind of like a salary negotiation um, that she might deal with in the future. So we talked through those mitigating factors, making sure she understood. And um, I didn't negotiate or anything for her. I just talked her through that and she went and handled all of herself. And she kind of, came and she was almost scared to ask a price, but she came back to me and said, hey, you know, they met me here and it was on the on the higher end and you could tell she was really excited. And I kind of probably, um, I, you know, almost mama bared it and said, hey, I, you know, I hope you have the best professional career, but one day you're gonna have to go in and negotiate a salary. And I just wanted her to remember everything she'd done. 
Because um, something in my career, I've learned a lot of people don't learn how to negotiate a salary till maybe three jobs too late. It's too late. Yeah. 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 And so that was a kind of a really, really cool life skills moment that I've actually shared with lots of parents and different things of like, we're learning life skills. We're learning how to talk to decision makers and professionals at such a young age. And they're learning how to manage money and pay taxes at such a young age. That it has huge amounts um, of, of benefits. And then my other one is, is just seeing, um, I always say this, and I've said it many times before, no one gives student athletes enough credit um, for how much they were willing to immediately turn around and NIL, get, use NIL to give back, whether that be their local community, their community back home, uh, uh, you know, someone that was really close to their hearts. Um, I think they did it immediately without, you know, being told or encouraged, because um, I do think that they understand that the local community embraces them and loves them where they are. Um, and I've seen a lot of them give back. So one of the cool things, I just think it's, we've seen local communities kind of rally around it and rise up and kind of feel a little bit more together in the sense as well. So what we've learned in the last few minutes is that Kat Jones negotiated an incredible salary for herself at the University of Tennessee. And I think that she's now passed that, uh, that knowledge on to her student athletes. And we also really appreciate uh, her time with us today. So Kat, thank you very much. We also learned that there's more questions uh, about NAL that are not answered yet. And uh, you have them, we have them. Uh, we're alternatively angry uh, and uh, not knowing. Uh, Brandon and I kind of flow into this world. We both have to deal with it. Uh, neither one of us, we both got drug into it, uh, but we both have to deal with it. We have to get better at it because it's not going away anytime soon. But we appreciate you. We appreciate your time. So thank you, Kat. Folks, this has been another edition of Knox Talk. I'm Paul Sickman. That's Brandon Parks. We're together and we're happy to be here and look forward to talking to you next week.